1: I know you're upset about all the criticism you've been taken in the fake news and the fake late-night shows. It's just we're all still having a little trouble adjusting to your presidency as it goes into its 500th year.
0: What I would say is I am for reciprocal civility full stop
1: we need to stop all this and begin to behave in a a civilized
2: manner
0: both sides should be respectful of discourse of the process
3: of dialogue you allowed to just kick someone out because you don't agree with their policies or their beliefs whatever happened to tolerance
2: hello and welcome to trumpcast i'm jamal bowie slate's chief political correspondent your host for today's episode After several members of the Trump administration were confronted at restaurants and, for press secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, asked to leave, pundits and commentators began asking if American politics were too uncivil. Was it right for critics to use public shame and opprobrium against those they opposed? Had liberals lost the higher ground in endorsing public action against specific individuals versus protests against the administration at large? In defense of civility, numerous commentators have made historical analogies. On the civility works better side, I cite Gandhi and MLK, Nixon's re-election, wrote Connor free of The Atlantic while speaking on Twitter. CNN pundit David Gergen exclaimed that the political left was more civil during the 1960s and 1970s. And even Bernie Sanders, while not making a historical analogy, urged Trump opponents to show some respect to administration officials, saying that he would have let Sarah Huckabee Sanders stay in the restaurant. To talk about this question of civility, we're going to speak with author and historian Nicole Hammer, and that will come after this short break.
1: Hi, Dan, Monica, welcome to your first session of Couples Therapy. Thank you. Glad to be here. If someone can be civil, I think we'll really get far. Well, that's a good start. So since this is our first session, I really like to start with just hearing from you listening to what's going on what you're thinking what brought you here so who'd like to go first i'd like to go first i'd just like to say that to me civility is a norm that we must always preserve in a marriage and monica has not been civil to me Hmm. and you may we may disagree but i think it's very important that we maintain civility in a relationship we don't yell we don't scream and you know monica's violated my trust Okay, so th- thanks, Dan. Now, Monica, it sounds like Dan thinks you're being uncivil. How does that make you feel? What What's your perspective on uh, that's this? That's
0: unbelievably inaccurate. I am being absolutely civil based on the information that I've received this week about our marriage.
1: To call me un- unbelievably inaccurate? I mean, that's, that's, no, cross- that's that crosses true. a line to me.
0: That is true. I found him this she week. She kicked
1: me out of a restaurant.
0: I did not kick you out of a restaurant.
1: Meals should be allowed to be finished. People should be able to go into a restaurant and finish a meal, even if you disagree with them.
0: I came into a restaurant that we both frequent. I came in with my friend. I saw him having dinner with another woman. I confronted him at the table. He denied that anything was going on. Confrontation. Holding hands across the table, okay? Okay. And I said, rather loudly, who is this woman and what are you doing here? And caused
1: a whole scene. yes, Yes, I caused a whole scene. Listen to her now. I mean, this is, she's, given, she's given up the moral high ground there. Dan, just listening from Monica's perspective here, it sounds like maybe you have some behavior that could have inspired her reaction. Yeah, I'm glad that? you said that. You know, because honestly, I do think in 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 a marriage we're allowed to disagree, right? She, M- M- Monica, may not agree.
0: This is not disagreement. This is not should you have an affair? I agree. I disagree. I am saying you have broke. The boundaries of our marriage. Okay, so I have a I have a reason to interrupt your Caesar you salad. See this? this is civil. So, so he doesn't is this, finish. Does this look his like scissors.
1: civil discourse well, to Dan, you, Dan, She's encouraged her friends to to confront me in public places. Well, Dan, they're
0: gonna see you, and if they see you, they might say something because I am their friend, and they are pissed off at you. Wow, this is not me. Is she going to apologize for that.
1: Well, like, Dan, to, at, at telling her friends, you know that kind of thing. I just I feel like that she's got no moral high ground to be on now Dan let me just ask you are you having an affair okay I mean if we want to get into the issues of it yes I'm having I'm having I'm having four affairs
0: four affairs I only knew about you're having four affairs I don't like being shouted at unbelievable I don't you like being shouted at you can move out of at. the house four times over take Th-
1: your shit throwing out throwing me out bring of the house bring it back in repack
0: shit it take it back That's out not bring really it back in the... I think you're a cheating lying bastard who's wow, been
1: totally a bastard A bastard. May she never live down the shame of this reaction.
2: That sketch was improvised in our Brooklyn studio by Kate James, Steve Waltine, and Asher Perlman. To talk this question of civility and its presence in American history... We're going to speak with Nicole Hammer, author of Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media, and the Transformation of American Politics, an assistant professor at the University of Virginia's Miller Center of Public Affairs, and co-host of the Past Present Podcast. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to Trumpcast. Hey, Jamel. So this week, listeners already know that we've had this conversation over the last week about civility in politics and where it's gone and where it's going um, and so forth. And you wrote a really interesting piece for Vox this week where you're a columnist pushing back against historical comparisons or at least ones that sort of argue that we were more civil in the past. So could you could you speak a, a little bit about those comparisons and what you find wrong about them?
3: Right. So one of the big comparisons that was being made was about Martin Luther King. That King would have embraced civility over disorder, or incivility or being mean to people and in many ways, I saw kind of the recreation of the same arguments that were being used against King back in the 1950s and 1960s, that civility was being used as kind of a cudgel to shut people up and to stop the argument rather than to kind of further it. And what I mean by that is that Back when King was pioneering his methods of direct action, when he was engaging in civil disobedience, he wasn't considered civil at all in that time. In fact, he was constantly being called upon to be more civil, to stop disrupting things, to just wait for, um, for the law to work or for arguments to work and not to keep um, instigating these moments of, of riots or violence or mayhem, to stop being an agitator. King himself, even though he, he did believe very strongly in nonviolence, not just as a tactic, but as a way of life, he believed you should be civil, not only he, that you should be nonviolent, not only in your actions, but in your words, um, was in many ways aware of the ways that civility was used to shut protests down and to prevent justice rather than to further
2: it. So I think it might be worth stepping back from here a little bit and trying to parse what exactly we mean these days when we talk about civility? Because the, precip- the precipitating incidents for this conversation were the sort of public shaming of several Trump administration officials, then at the uh, the restaurant tour in Lexington, Virginia, who asked uh, press secretary Sarah Hugby Sanders to leave her restaurant, um, and. That, that then prompted a whole conversation about whether that's appropriate, whether it's, it's uncivil to um, use those actions. But it, it's unclear to me what, what people mean by civil, right? Like, is it simply being calm? Is it simply being sort of polite? Or is there, is there some other argument about sort of the role of politics and civil society that's going on?
3: So I think that this is actually a big part of the problem. And this is why the red hen case being the center of this conversation is so confusing. Because if you look at the actions of the owner and the people at the red hen, they were incredibly civil in just about any way you could define the word, right? They very calmly call Sarah Sanders aside. They explain to her very calmly what what their reasoning is for not being able to serve her. They comp her her meal, and then they don't say anything about it, right? They don't run to the press and say, you know, look at what we did to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Um, And so that makes this a particularly odd case for it. But at the same time, I think it helps us understand the way that civility can be used as kind of a wily weapon against any sort of activism or speaking out, right? I mean, what happened here? You had people talking to a public official and expressing their discontent in probably the most civil way possible, and yet still being beaten back by this idea that they're not being civil enough and being beaten back across the political spectrum, right? It's right. not just conservatives who are coming out against the red hen. It's Bernie Sanders, it's Nancy Pelosi. So it's really happening across the board.
2: I guess the thing that I find baffling about all of this is that, um, in addition, in addition to sort of the, the paradigmatic examples of protest in the sixties and seventies being decidedly uncivil by the, com- I guess, this common meaning, um, it, it, what it seems like is happening is essentially an argument that. Um, there is no place in politics, in um, public discussion for uh, what I guess we call public shaming or like moral opprobrium or casting some political actions as beyond, you know, ordinary politics in the in the sense that we can all disagree or agree about tax policy and towards sort of something more um, akin to an ethical problem that must be confronted. That like the argument the implicit argument at least from the critics of the red hen and and others is that uh, that has no place in in politics as we understand it. And that just seems really like a historical to me. It seems, it seems not of a piece with how Americans have done politics um, since the country's inception.
3: Right. There's no place really for righteous anger. And I think you make a good point about bringing this to kind of a a moral discussion and the, the lines that are being drawn here. I mean, We've seen throughout American history, people using different types of violent, nonviolent, civil, uncivil actions, especially when the political system fails them, right? Um, so if we think about anything from John Brown, an abolitionist who are fighting back against the system in which there is no room within the political realm to really debate Um, or to have a discussion or to end something as uh, immoral as enslavement. If we look at Um, women fighting for suffrage and having to use all kinds of tactics in order to disrupt the normal politics in order to get their agenda on the table. Or as you rightly point out in the 1960s and 1970s, the work of activists to, again, break through this kind of consensus that civility was protecting. And I think that's what's so important about understanding this nostalgia about civility is that Yes, I think, you know, mainstream politics in the 1950s and early 1960s looked incredibly civil. And in fact, if you look back at the newspaper records of the time, there's this real lacuna, this real dip in the any discussion about civility in the 1950s and early 60s. Um, but part of that was that so much of politics was taken off the table and this sort of general white middle-class consensus was being held up by both parties, by the journalists of the day, um, and anything outside of that consensus was deemed both illegitimate but also uncivil. And there wasn't really a space in mainstream politics to make your case. So something like a lunch counter sit-in, something like a March on Washington in 1963 is seen as rabble-rousing and uncivil and outside of the bounds of normal politics. And I think that's what we're kind of seeing today. As the politics of the day get more and more out of bounds, and as there's fewer and fewer options for people to protest within the, the mainstream political system, you're going to get these confrontations in part because the acts of officials are so immoral and so beyond the pale but also because people feel like there's not really a voice for them within a system that's you know largely controlled by republicans
2: I mean that's I think that's an interesting frame not just for understanding the current debate over civility but for what what seems to be kind of a real flowering of protest movements over the past 5 years you look at Black Lives Matter, which the the largest and most heated protests are happening in places where lo- a lot of locals, um, mainly African American, but others do feel shut out of the political system and don't seem to have a voice. And so, mass protests, or in the case of Ferguson and Baltimore, even damage to public, uh, damage to private property. Those. End up being kind of the. It seems like a rational choice to take, right? That this is the only way I'm gonna, I'm gonna be heard. And I, I'm wondering, just looking, looking forward in time a bit, if, um, if we are in a period of American politics where gerrymandering um, means it's more difficult for liberal voters or uh, voters friendly to liberals to win majorities in uh, the House Representatives, if the electoral college um, disadvantages those same voters in the president uh, for the presidency, if a sense that there aren't very many outlets for sort of the expression of political disapproval or dissent, if that means we might be entering a period of even I guess more uh, public protest, um, uh, more, I guess you'd call, incivility.
3: I think that's absolutely what we're seeing. I definitely thought a lot about Black Lives Matter as I was writing this piece, in large part because those protests, even when they were as calm as humanly possible, were often being berated, especially on the right, as being too over the top, too violent, too um, too uncivil in many ways. But I do think one of the things that we're seeing in American politics, and I think we can even push this back beyond just the last five years, is that over the past 20 years or so, Republicans have adopted an increasingly unpopular set of policy preferences. So everything from, you know, their recent tax cuts to their stance on immigration to their stance on um, Roe v. Wade, like these are unpopular policies. And even as they embrace those and really unpopular tactics like shutting down the government, playing games with the national debt they continue to win elections for the very reasons that you're talking about. And so here you have Democrats who actually, their platform policies tend to be incredibly popular, and yet they're not winning elections um, while Republicans are, and Republicans in power are pushing increasingly unpopular policies. And that's going to lead to an incredible amount of frustration in this system just from that disconnect. But you add on to that, that people are losing the right to vote, um, that people who do vote and win elections by millions of votes don't actually get the office, Um, the frustration that built up over the 2000 and the 2016 election, um, but also the efficacy, right, of these protests in a sense. I mean, the Women's March in early 2017 has laid the framework for some some political victories on the state level. It's led to more and more women entering politics. And so there's also this sense that, you know, it hasn't changed politics entirely, but maybe these protests are a way to begin to change the conversation. And by changing the conversation somewhere down the line, if we can get past all of these new barriers thrown up in our way, that you could actually change politics through this kind of, I guess, uncivil protest.
2: This is a little bit afield from what we're talking about, but it is interesting to think about threats to American democracy beyond simply, you know, if, if Trump decides to, in the Mueller investigation and attempt to avoid any kind of um, accountability for whatever it finds, I mean, besides those immediate things, that, that long-term, this question of the increasing misalignment of the outcomes of our political system with the actual um uh, beliefs preferences and even votes of the public at large like that seems like it creates a lot quite a bit of stress on the system and thinking about population distributions and sort of where which states are growing which states are shrinking you know to to me it looks like the odds of a another electoral college popular vote split and uh, the presidential election are actually pretty high. That You can you can easily see that happening with an even greater um, uh, disparity between the winner of the presidency and the winner of the popular vote. And that I, – I, I, this isn't even a question. This is sort of just like, – I'd be curious what you think. That to me seems like a kind of unseen, unforetold or – or unanticipated, but very dangerous stress on just like the structure of American democracy going forward.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that you're going to continue to see that. I think that just if you run the numbers, that people, that the gap between popular vote and representation is growing, not shrinking. And so the more that people feel that they don't have a voice and the more that it seems like the stakes are really, really high. And I think that's what we're really seeing. And that's why the stress is growing so much is that in an era of politics where you don't actually think that there's much of a difference between the two parties or where you don't feel like something existential is at stake, then if politics seems unfair, then, okay, it seems unfair and you're going to be upset about that, but it's not going to seem like the stakes are that high. But right right now, what we're seeing is that, (laughs) mistakes are really, really high, and they're getting higher every day. And you're having, you know, as you were saying, like the the popular will is being thwarted. Um, The constitutional checks and balances that people were depending on don't seem to be working very well. Um, And yet, what can you do to actually change it? And I think that the retirement of Anthony Kennedy has really helped expose that frustration and that sort of despair among liberals, which is, oh, not only is this not going to change with the 2020 election, even if votes are um, translated into fair representation, but this isn't going to change for at least a generation, if not more. And so I think that's where you're getting that sense of extra stress even now, right? It, It does seem like this system that is under stress is not easing up in any way, right? It's getting worse and worse as the weeks and months go
2: on. Right, I think and I think you're right to point to the Anthony Kennedy's retirement as something putting that into into sharp relief. I think I've already seen conversations among among liberal writers, thinkers, et cetera, wondering if, you know, if a Democrat wins the presidency in 2020, if a Democrat brings with them um, a large majority is in both houses of Congress, um, would their agenda even be constitutional given uh, a very conservative court? And what does it mean that it's possible that, like, a, democratic, a democratically elected government? Pursuing policies preferred by most of their constituents and maybe the public at large, then sees those policies struck down by like an ideological Supreme court. We already kind of saw that almost happened mm-hmm. during the Obama years with the with the court cases against the Affordable Care Act. And uh, John Roberts, the Chief Justice, very sort of pointedly ruled to uphold the Affordable Care Act, I think knowing what it would do to the legitimacy of the court. To shrink it down entirely, but I don't. I don't think the fear is unfounded, and I do think that we are kind of, in a weird way, we're approaching pre-kind of uncharted territory. Like there, in the past, it's certainly been the case that you've had a court very hostile to for, to government action of any of any kind, but it feels given the stakes feel higher, the expectations for the government are much greater than they were in say the 1900s or 1910s, and so. It certainly seems like the next few years, the next decade or next 20 years are shaping up to be kind of a a, a new period in American history that bears similarities to the past, but is is in, in critical response, in critical ways, like very, very different and and heightened and contentious.
3: Yeah, and I would really just draw attention to and sit for a moment with your example of the Affordable Care Act, because that's something that was you know, that was at the heart of the Democratic primaries in 2008. It was at the heart of Barack Obama's campaign. It was the thing that he threw all of his weight behind. Democrats had big majorities to be able to make that happen. And you began to see right from the start, these kind of unusual methods being used to thwart or to kill the Affordable Care Act and to then dismantle it after it had been passed. And I think that That idea that the American people could overwhelmingly vote for an agenda that had this at its heart and then not have any kind of way to actually get it in its true form feels like already that kind of um, sense of frustration, right? Um, but you're only going to see that accelerated, you know, 10, 15 years down the line. And I think that, you know, think about how frustrated people feel right now. But if you actually do win those elections and can't get that agenda through, you're already hearing people talking about going back to the 1930s and ideas around packing the courts or or the impeachment of Supreme Court justices. And these are ideas that... Liberals weren't seriously toying with um, over the past several decades, and so it, it does create a crisis in the system. And we've definitely seen crises in the system before, but the the parallels historically are pretty bleak, right? It's like the 1850s and you can't actually get anything done and there's increasing violence and there's increasing discontent and there are real moral issues at the heart that cannot be resolved through um, some sort of consensus or debate, right? There's a a right and there's a wrong and there's not really much of a middle ground. And so it's, It's incredibly worrisome. And, you know, calls for civility, you kind of understand where they come from in a time when people are already feeling overwhelmed by the chaos that they're experiencing every day. And yet, you can also understand why people are looking for bigger and bolder ways of achieving change in a time when the the normal modes of politics are broken.
2: We've been speaking with Nicole Hammer, author of Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media and the Transformation of American Politics, an assistant professor at the University of Virginia's Miller Center of Public Affairs and co-host of the Past Present Podcast. Thank you, Nicole, for joining us uh, this afternoon.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Jamal.
2: That's our show for today. If you like this podcast, if you like Slate, you should consider Slate Plus. With the Slate Plus membership, you get new podcasts, additional content, and early access to our events. By this point, you probably know that I love history. And I've done two podcasts for Slate Plus on key periods of American history, the history of slavery and the history of Reconstruction. To try those and other podcasts, just go to slate.com slash trumpcast plus. There, you can start a free two-week trial. That's slate.com slash trumpcast plus for a free two-week trial. As always, we are on Twitter and you should follow us. Our account is at Realtrumpcast. That is at Realtrumpcast. Get ahead of all the Trump news you can handle and keep up with us in the show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. I'm Jamel Bowie and thank you for listening.
1: Dan, you had four affairs. Yeah, dog. Do you feel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, bro. (laughs) Ah.
0: Yeah, man. You're welcome.